Welcome to Coffee and Crucial Conversations, where we discuss the tough topics facing educators. In today's episode, we will explore the crucial question, should we label students? We hope you enjoy. I am joined today by several special education, general education teachers who work all over the U.S., and I'd love to hear your thoughts on the value or lack of value for labeling students. Labeling students with a diagnosis and determining them eligible for specialized services um, for education comes with uh, several different outcomes and consequences. And um, my opinions, my personal opinions on this have shifted dramatically in the last five years. So I'd love to hear your perspectives. Do you advocate for or against labels? Well, I think that sometimes it can be useful just um, depending on maybe um, the legal ramifications as far as getting services because um, I'm in Georgia. And so I think in my state it can be, and I'm not completely sure about all the, like I said, again, like all the, you know, guidelines and what the requirements are and whatnot, but um, it can be sometimes hard to get services unless you do have a diagnosis. And so I would hate for that to, you know, stop an individual from getting the services they need just because they can't get, you know, an official diagnosis. Like, um, I know I have a co-teacher that I Um, that I've been working with and her daughter has cerebral palsy Um, but she thinks she has some other stuff going on too but um, she was just like you know I don't really even know if she has cerebral palsy she was like but I have to I had to give her a diagnosis so she could get you know the things she needed and some help Um, and so I mean I'm kind of hate that's what it took but (laughs) I'm glad that finally got her some help she needed Um, but at the same time too you know I think we have to be careful that we don't let it you know box us in to anything, you know, especially like individuals with ASD, you know, they may have ASD, but they're all individuals when it comes down to it. So <laughs> no one's exactly alike. Um, so I think it, you know, it has its, its positives and its negatives, depending on how we take it. Yeah, I think that language is so important in our field. We're discovering, I think, like um, we mentioned, like in the last five years, language has become a huge Um, discussion around special education, even the word special education, I've seen um, come up um, as, you know, a label in itself that this is not just general education with modifications, it's a specialized and that therefore is a label. Um, So I've seen some articles about, no, instead of saying you're a special ed teacher, say you're accommodation specialist, um, which I really love. Um, I think that it gets, um, tricky because I think that parents and especially adults like um, you know just in the past couple of years I've come to understand my own anxiety and I think giving it a name really helped me to um, figure out how to combat you know the different things that come with it right so I know a lot of parents um, you know there's constipation or there's sensory or there's eating and all of these things and they just want answers to why and I think like with girls with ASD where we're diagnosing so much later and they're not able to do those early intervention services I think those labels are so important to give peace of mind um, and to give kind of a name to the problems it's not just my kid's a picky eater, there's actually reasons behind that Um, so I do think language is important I think that that's something like child with autism and now the autistic community is kind of um, taking the word autistic back. Um, So I think this is something that 
we'll see in the next 10 years just really keep expanding and we'll learn so much more. Um, but I, so I agree that there's, um, it's important to understand how our language impacts, especially parents and like that relationship, um, but also how it impacts the solution oriented mindset too. Um, um, I was, when you mentioned this, um, like you were, well, like what you were saying, um, that it does give, gives parents an understanding when they're searching for answers and say, you know, and it gives us a starting place. One thing at the early childhood level, the labels are much more fluid. And one of the terms that has changed over the years that I've been teaching, it's not before there were just like three different labels to describe autism. There was autistic, there was um, NOS, not otherwise specified or Asperger's, but now it's a spectrum. And so it makes it more fluid. So those labels are important, but at the same time, you know, there can be a shift, particularly in the early childhood setting. And I love it that, that we start at three, but then we explain to parents, you know, this is what we suspect, but we're not sure this could change. And then some, just like one of the kids I got, um, she had, was labeled um, autism, with suspicion of autism and early childhood was suspicion of autism. But then when I got her, I saw so much more ADHD. I definitely saw the autism, but then I was like, oh my gosh, if we could just treat the ADHD, how much autism would we really see? So the label was very fluid. And that's something that I feel like we need to explain to parents. Yes, this is a label, but this is just a launching pad, like accommodations, like, okay, let's try these accommodations and see where it takes us. We may need to shift and change the accommodations. And also, since we're getting so much better at diagnosing so early, that diagnosis could change. We may not need that diagnosis if there's enough early intervention. And something I wanted to bring up what Patrick said about, I think it was you and one of the discussion about respect for the diagnosis and how that can impact if we explain it to parents, yes, this is a label, but this is how, um, you know, if we, just the way we view it, um, you know, like we had mentioned about the labels and how it's treated and sometimes parents are like, oh my gosh, this is just really difficult. But if we're respecting the diagnosis, how is that going to impact how we do the intervention that, yes, there's an autism, it's a different learning style, but how are we going to address it? And we can do interventions. Um, I was interviewing a parent who is even in special ed. Why have you not have your child uh, um, diagnosed up to now? Because uh, there are obvious uh, uh, red flags that he uh, he is on the spectrum, whichever it is. Up to now, is not labeled because she has been. We told her so well. She said, "I need services for my child, but not the label." I said, okay, then uh, think back, go to the doctor, you say, um, you are kind of sick. I do not want to equate it with sickness or whatever, but I was just trying to bring it to the uh, limelight. You are sick, you go to the doctor, you have to describe what is happening and eventually, oh, this is headache, uh, this is uh, cancer, this is whatever. And then that would narrow down the kind of, um, if you are going to not see the label, but the services that is associated, and then that will drive home exactly the kind of services you're gonna be getting, then you are less likely to be offended by the label. And um, also whoever is in charge in explaining those kind of um, diagnosis should do 
those kind of explanations with respect, not only for the individual, but for the diagnosis itself. We just are uh, on the spectrum and there could be uh, something that, you know, the service involved should be what we should capitalize on and not the name. I um, actually, in our district, we kind of talk about special education as services, not a place, and that we're on a continuum of services. Um, I had a particular student this year that was in a different district and was placed in an autism self-contained program because she was medically diagnosed with autism. However, she was also intellectually disabled. And so um, they moved to our district, which is clear across the city. <laughs> so, um, and we placed her with me. I teach significant support needs. And the mom was saying how different her experience has been because really her intellectual disability was where she needed the support and the services not so much the autism. And we don't have autism on her IEP. It is in the discussion of her um, present levels and things. And there are some things that we've done to help, but that's not where she's majorly impacted. So I think that's a perfect example of where a label can hinder what the child might need. Um, and I deal with a lot of the, all my kids have an intellectual disability. And so um, one of the things that I deal with is when you have that first conversation with a parent and you're telling them that their child is intellectually disabled, it is very, very tough. Um, and so one of the things that we really try to do as a team is really explain that that label does not identify who that child is it identifies what services are available, especially when they're in that post-secondary. I mean, some of them need life skills instead of college. Of course, some of them can go to college and we talk about that. Like we talk about that, I don't see limits. The team that works with them don't see, we don't, they don't see limits. And so it's a label to make sure that they get the services they need. But I, I, it's such a hard, I mean, I've, I, we always talk about that the parents are going through that grief. Like it's like they go through a grieving process and you really have to kind of walk them through it. Um, and just being very open to having those conversations. Um, yeah. I always have, you know, I've had parents cry. I've had parents yell and tell me like, why would you need to teach my child? Why would my child even need to be in your classroom? You know, and just really it's, I think when we talk about like that trust in those relationships, it's so important. And then that label kind of goes by the wayside a little bit. Um, I fortunately get to be with mine for a long time. And it's, it's amazing some of the 360s that I have yeah. as far as change. Um, and it's just about having them trust you and see that that label doesn't identify their child. And I think that's where the controversy or that discussion is, is that, you know, you can't see the label. You have to look at the child. 
Right. And that's really where my um, shift happened when I started really trying to um, look outside of standards-based education, our current system, and what we've been given to work with, you know, are labels necessary in a system that's student-centered, that, that takes every student as they are and makes adjustments for who they are and is universally designed? Um, and really, it does eliminate the need for labels within a system when every single child is going to be evaluated as just a person, you know, who they are as a person. And um, so at the Transformative Leadership Academy, I'll have parents and we have a very diverse um, group. If you weren't on last week, I think I shared, we have about 45% of our students have um, some type of disability diagnosed or not. Um, and sometimes parents are, um, have a hard time like shifting from like a, a public school model versus our model. And like, how do you advocate for services? And when I say like, well, we'll just give it to them, you know, whatever they need, we'll, we'll accommodate them. We'll make sure that they have what they need to be successful. Cause that's our goal. It's hard. Cause they're like, well, but we're used to having to have meetings to have it in writing and make sure. And like, and we can have, we do have uh, meetings as well to set goals, but um, that fight for services isn't quite the same when you're a student-centered environment where you're already making it your goal to meet every student's need. And so um, thinking of education in those terms really was like, that's the reason the labels are there is because it's standardized we're trying to make our decisions a little bit faster. We're trying to have a little bit more of a package deal. Like, okay, you have this label. So here's the main services we usually give to a student like this. And really good, our teams are gonna be more individualized. It sounds like Amy, that's kind of how your team work is, works is, okay, this is the label to start with, but let's start developing a plan around this individual student, which is a great you know, way to start. And, um, there's a necessity to have a way to move through that quickly so that you can get services as fast as possible to students who need them. So I get that. But if you were to rethink education or reimagine the structure and the system, um, I realize now that maybe labels aren't as necessary as um, they had been for me previously working in um, you know, the public school or traditional model. But then I think um, to someone else's point, and I'm, I can't remember who was talking about this, but being able to identify, um, oh, I think it was Sasha, um, yourself, like things that are going on with your own brain, like if you have anxiety, or if you notice that um, your thoughts skip around a lot, and you might have a hard time focusing identifying yourself as part of a group of, I have ADD, you know, okay, that's why my brain works like that. That's why I don't think through things exactly like someone else does. And my husband actually went through that as an adult. He, you know, did fine in school, um, K through 12 and started, I think getting a little bit more challenging towards secondary school, but, um, 
he always was like, my brain just doesn't seem to work the same as everyone else's. And sometimes teachers expect me to do things and I just like, can't do it exactly that way, but he's extremely creative and he's very smart. And then when we met, I was like, oh, well you have ADD. That's why. <laughs> and he's like, what? And then I kind of explained, you know, some of the characteristics and he was like, yeah, that's exactly what's going on. And so you know, now he can try and find coping mechanisms that work for people with ADD. And so on that side of things, being able to identify yourself as part of a group um, and know that you're not alone, maybe that is a helpful part of the labeling process. Does anybody else have experience with that um, aspect of like getting to be part of a group because of uh, maybe a label you've given yourself or have been given? Um, in my own situation, it's not like a um, group of a thing, but I work with them in a residential um, situation where they need all uh, government-sponsored uh, services. You go to see the doctor, you go to the government offices, whatever services you need, at least in California. If you don't have any level, where are you going to get your service from and where are you going to get the funding from? So from the description you gave, education-wise, that might work, but receiving services and funding, as far as my experience goes, does not work without the label. And we are supporting parents, not only to get academic services, remember most of the, they age out most of the time by 21. So if we dodge all this uh, labeling, what happens to them? by the time they age out. So at least we deliver why they are still in the, those categorization periods. We might be helping parents by helping them navigate to their services and providers and provide as much services as we can academic wise to be sure that they are getting from both words. Yeah, that's a great point and I think um... I don't think we would ever live in a country that government wasn't pretty standardized. That's kind of the a nature of government programs. Government funding is it has to be pretty standardized where they have like groupings so that they can quickly make decisions, like you say, about um, financial support. And so without those labels, you're right, there would be really no way unless um, we just kind of lived in a utopian society where everyone just identified themselves and their needs and we all just believed it to be true and we helped people as they asked for it. So yeah, I don't necessarily think that that could ever happen. Um, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, public education does have to operate that way is because it is really a government funded program, which means it needs to be standardized um, in a lot of ways. So yeah, definitely. And when students age out, even if our schools looked different, they wouldn't be able to get the funding they needed without the label. So yeah, great point. What I would love to see is in like K through 12 is more of kind of that preschool model that where you have your gen ed and special ed kids together, even the significant ones, because that's the thing that breaks my heart every day is that when I go into a class and really, you know, it's like they're treated like they're not a part of the class when they are. Um, 
and I just, that's the one thing I, I don't like about the whole, the labeling system, because I really just, it's like, oh, I wish we could co-teach. I wish we could, you know, just have the kids with their peers all the time. It, it almost like necessitates exclusion, yeah. you know, the labeling um, somehow. And maybe that's not true for every system, but it, it's like, oh, well, this group of students isn't going to do so well in this standard model. So you, you're, we're going to exclude you from these certain things. Um, and that that's something else, you know, I've been able to witness at TLA is, um, and I honestly wasn't sure how this was going to work because I've never done it before, but I had a student um, who was nonverbal and he had autism and he was actually diagnosed as having an intellectual disability as well, which I didn't agree with, but we'd never, I'd never worked with him and he'd never been in a opportunity to thrive, I guess you could say. And we just, you know, put him in the class with everyone else. Um, it's a small uh, class number. It was 12 others or 11 other students, but um, he flourished and became extremely social and very outgoing and his communication picked up tremendously just by being surrounded by that and not being told like, no, you can only access this part of the building and you have to stay with these particular students. You don't have the fluidity to move around or to be in a, just a class with all of your peers. It changed everything for that particular student. And so that opened my eyes to maybe how this isolation and exclusion has long-term impacts on progress. But again, I understand why in a standard space model, you do have to kind of quickly group students and, and move them around so that um, you can continue working towards the goal, which in a standards based model might be doing well on high stakes tests. So that there's all these challenges. Any other thoughts on the label um, issue before I pose another question? Well, I would say I had a an issue with this this past school year. Our LSSP, I have a student um, who has an auditory impairment. And in working with him, you know, he's a gen ed kiddo. He doesn't really have a whole lot of accommodations other than AI accommodations. I was like, mm, he's um, ringing my autism bell for sure. And so I talked to his teachers and I talked to, uh, he's on the wrestling team and our wrestling coach is one of us. He's one of our SPED teachers. So I was like, coach, what do you see? He's like, oh yeah, for sure. So I talked to our LSSP before I talked to the parent because I didn't want to, you know, jump the gun, step on anybody's toes. And I said, this is what I'm seeing with this student and you know, I was thinking about talking to mom about doing additional testing. And she said, why? What point would that serve? And I said, well, okay. I mean, he's getting accommodations as a student with an auditory impairment, but that doesn't explain all of his behaviors and what we know and how we treat him is not going to be the same as somebody who just gets his paperwork. And what if he goes to a different district? I mean, it's kind of the flip side of what Amy was talking about. You know, they, the kiddo came to her and they're very fluid. Well, 
DISD, Dallas is a huge school district and there are a lot of things that they don't do unless they are specifically documented. And so I was like, well, I'm not going to treat him any differently, but I don't know that they're going to stay in this district forever. And what about when he graduates? You know, there are some accommodations that he might need. And my own two children, you know, they have very different situations, but there are a whole lot of medications that my son takes that he would not have access to if he didn't have the diagnosis that he does, you know? And that's, I think the issue is less of the label and more of what the label is. Because I am very fortunate to be I mean, our district is good, but the high school where I work is amazing. And I'll take a little bit of credit as one of the department chairs for this, but we are all about moving kiddos out of our um, developmental classrooms to the, the greatest extent. And we had a big, you know, we didn't have resource in all of the core subjects before and we went to the superintendent and we explained why we thought this was a good idea. And people were talking about how it's so restrictive. It's like, well, but look at the other side. If we can move those kids into, you know, out developmental classroom where they don't leave anywhere and into the resource classroom and then see how they do and then progress them out. I mean, I have a student who was a freshman year. He moved out of the developmental classroom this coming school year, he's going to be in resource. Ability, which he does not have. And so, you know, we've done additional testing. He's on the autism spectrum. And his mom didn't understand, like there were a lot of things that she was afraid to get him to do because of the intellectual disability label. And so that was a bad thing, but then relabeling him on the autism spectrum, giving him access to more services outside of the school, I don't treat him any differently, you know, but that's the thing. I mean, our microcosm of the school is not necessarily representative. Like you said, and, and until we have a utopia where it doesn't matter what's going on with you, people are going to need to know that I might have to do or not do around you in order to accommodate you as a starting place. You know, not it's not the end all be all. It, it needs to be fluid, but there sure. needs to be you a know, jump off point. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And that identification with the group, you know, um, families, parents, somehow maybe a label helps them make themselves as a parent part of a group of parents who also might be dealing with certain challenges based on their child's needs. Um, and that could be helpful as well. Um, Brittany, were you going to jump in and say something? Yeah, I was just going to kind of um, go off of kind of what Amy was talking about. Um, you know, like I'm big into also to, you know, advocating for students um, with special needs being more involved, you know, in the general education classroom, because I think there's so much that they can learn from one another. 
Um, you know, and it was interesting too, because again, I was having a conversation with someone the other day about how, you know, special ed in itself still carries such a label. Um, and I think we're still, you know, working and trying to redefine that um, even to this day, because I think you still run into a lot of parents that think special ed again is, you know, what it was when they were in school, you know, and so sometimes they almost take it as an insult, like when we, you know, bring up the fact of like, oh, well, your child could benefit from special ed services. And they're like, well, there's nothing wrong with my child. And so you have to really try to spin it around and be like, you know, no, we're not saying there is, you know, but, and so it's kind of just letting them know, like, special education is not what it used to be, you know, it's changing. It's, um, you know, there's, there's such a diverse group of kids, um, and students in special education, just as much as in general education. You know, there's students who are gifted in special education. There's students, you know, with so many different needs. And so um, I think it's really important for us too to, you know, just to really explain what special education is, how it's changing, how, you know, it's not a bad thing, you know, to really spin around to like where it's a positive thing. You know, the services are there to help your child, um, you know, just meet their goals in the way that's going to work for them. So yeah. um, whether that's more, whether that's less, just, you know, really like put the spin on it that it's all about, you know, making education meet your child's needs. Um, so exactly. that's something that I'm really, you know, personally um, trying to, you know, work on understanding more about how I can, you know, make education, special education, a positive thing. And, um, you know, so that's just kind of one of my personal goals. Um, it's, it's <laughs> so true though. There's a huge stigma around the concept of special education. Um, and even around the concept of disability, I was recently kind of, um, doing some research into, well, diversity and inclusion and um, some of the concepts have been picked up and are being advocated for with people who are advocate, advocating for other types of diversity like racial, ethnic background, um, cultural, linguistic um, are also starting to recognize that ableism, you know, discriminating people based on ability is a very big issue and how can we reframe that, um, that people's differing abilities is not a negative thing. It's a standard thing. Like we all have differing abilities. That is the reality. Um, and one word that's been used and I'm starting to see it more is neurodiversity. Have you guys heard this term neurodiversity to be used to describe just the just people, people in general, and the fact that we all have varying um, mental powers, our brains all work differently, and it, just because someone is different doesn't mean that it's disabled, that they're not able, um, I, and I really like that reframing, and um, I wonder how that can be brought into education systems and help people start seeing neurodiversity in our differences in a positive light and as a, a thing that we all experience rather than isolating groups of people and saying, well, they're disabled, they're not able to do things and um, they receive 
a certain education that's not as high level or as rigorous, which is not true and shouldn't be true of special education or services provided by special education. Um, but I really like the term neurodiversity and I want to see it incorporated culturally, you know, into how we talk about people of varying abilities. What do you guys think about that? Um, and, you know, have you used it or seen it being used at all? Uh what I would uh, think about this is only semantics. It would not take uh, even a year before people would, because it's still a level. It's not, it's either you are in general education and therefore you are seen as typical or you are not. It started with retarded, it started with other terminologies. We came to special education and you are autistic no, uh, the past few years, it is an offense around us to say you are autistic. He has autism, he has this. When you come with neurodiversity, uh, uh, they are also going to see what does it entail. And through the description, it still come out that it's a label for people who are on different um, spectrum of whatever it is. So it may help in academic world to give them uh, some kind of respect, some kind of recognition, but it still boils down to what um, uh, the lady there, I don't know your name, the one in blue, I'm sorry about that, says, you have to think about medication. You have to think of, about funding. You have to think about teaching. So after all those labels and making them beautiful, if they are denied services medical-wise, they are denied services fund-wise, it does not serve the people we are trying to relabel. It is they that are the end of, the, the receiving end of what name or whatever name we don't give to them. I hadn't heard the neurodiversity until now. That's the first time I've heard it, but I like the, the label in the fact that kind of like cultural diversity, when we, we learn about cultural diversity, I think we should learn about neurodiversity as well because I understand labels and I understand the need for them in public schools, but you have kids who are twice exceptional. They may not need academic accommodations, but there is something that makes them a little bit different in the way they learn. And if that's identified and recognized, that can help them know their differences are okay. Yeah, and, and the thing I like about neurodiversity is um, it, it could be used as a label, I guess, but in reality, it describes everyone and that's, it's very inclusive. We are all neurodiverse, that's the point. We all experience neurodiversity. Um, and so reframing ability levels as neurodiversity rather than using the term neurodiversity to describe one person. It's not about this group of people are neurodiverse. It's about, I am neurodiverse. Megan is, we all experience neurodiversity. We all have strengths and weaknesses. Like it's very inclusive. And again, um, to Patrick's point, I get that in our current structure and system, 
we still have to really be advocating um, for the services that families and individuals receive and how to get those to, to individuals easiest is for them to have labels, for those labels to be recognized by the organizations that provide you know, funding. Um, so I, I do get that, but just because that's the way it is, doesn't mean that's the way it has to be. In my mind, I'm always looking for maximizing um, structures and systems because that's what promotes um, innovation that's what promotes change. That's what moves us away from discriminate, discriminating practices. And what we see in our society or what I've seen is that ableism, discrimination based on people's ability is still a very serious issue. It's still something that's not talked about enough. It's something that people think they can get away with, that they can discriminate somewhat uh, discriminate against someone based on the labels they carry um, or the way they look, you know, it's, and it needs to be talked about and we need change for that. Something I recently had an experience and I, it's a, and I feel like it applies to education. I've always, I went to the eye doctor recently and I've always struggled with my eyes, extremely nearsighted and stigmatisms. And now there's even more weird stuff going on. And so when I go to the eye doctor, I said, oh, I have all these problems. And he goes, they're not problems. It's just, your eyes are shaped differently. It's just describing how your eyes were. It's like, oh, I never looked at it that way. And so this is a nice young doctor. I was like, it's just a description of how they are. That doesn't mean, you know, that I need to go in and my lenses need to be changed and adjusted. And especially now that I'm getting older, there's other weird things going on. But he was so positive about it. And if we could just have that outlook with, when you said neurodiversity, I'd heard of it, but I wasn't quite familiar. But like, I was going to say exactly what you had said, um, that that includes everyone, you know, um, my second daughter, she was very bright and she graduated top 10% all that, but she's also very quiet. She's not an extrovert. And so, you know, for her to, so her needs were just different, you know, yeah. Um, studying comes pretty easy. You know, I never have to check on her straight A's, you know, on a roll, everything, but then she has other needs. We all have different unique needs. And so when we describe neurodiversity, it's just a, it's more of a description. And one thing that we've done, you know, as the, Plaps have gotten more extensive. When I first started teaching, you know, there was not any such thing as plap, you know, but so now we're describing what are the strengths and what are the deficits and it's more of a whole person rather than just what are the deficits. <laughs> so. Um. Ah, definitely um, the, the movement towards using, and I'll just say what plaps is for anybody who doesn't know, it's the um, present, you know, levels of academic uh, achievement. So describing exactly what are the strengths, what are the weaknesses, and not um, as a way to just focus on weaknesses, but also as a way to say, yeah, not great at this aspect, but let's also like hone in on the fact that this student's a brilliant mathematician. You know, let's use that strength to play um, into their, their development and, and keep them moving forward and progressing. So I love the the way that um, special education systems are really embracing the fact that those need to be strong and real. And when I was in um, teaching, it was almost um, like it was it was a new uh, procedure of writing plaques, 
I, I hate saying that word too. It's very difficult to do the F and the P, but yes. <laughs> um, it was almost like we we're just kind of putting things on paper so that we could present it in the art and it wasn't as meaningful. And then over time, as we started all understanding more about why we needed to use a strong plaque to develop the plan, then it became very meaningful. And then you really started describing exactly who this student is as a whole person, instead of just listing out, well, they're, you know, they did well on this, 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 they did poor on this, 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 and then check the boxes. Okay, we're done with the plaque. No, the plaque is the whole student. That's the whole thing. That's where we really say who this kid is. Um, so that's a strong process. And um, for any of you who maybe haven't done one or don't view it that way, I would encourage you to really start thinking about how you write those. Really be intentional about providing a great full picture of who a student is in their plaque as a jumping off point to developing their, their program. Well, and when we read the plaques and the art meeting, you know, I always try and start off the positive and their personality kind of sets the tone of how we're looking at this child. You know, when we start off with the positives and we go into detail about that and then it's like, okay, this is where we're struggling. We need to make adjustments. Do you all feel um, like your mindset or maybe the way you've been trained or the conversations that you have in your position focus more on strengths or deficits? Strengths, definitely. Great. I think the conversations I have with my parents, when we know the student, we say all the positives. And I have one administrator will pop in and, and, and you know, or sometimes I'll text them, hey, you gotta come see this. But then sometimes the people that don't know my class or they don't know the students, they see the negative or they see the child running down the hall when I'm having, you know, when they've eloped, when I've accidentally left the door open or whatever. So their perception, you know, but um, yeah, so sometimes I hear the negative and it, then it's our job as special educators to say, hey, but this is what this child can do. Let me, and so the, um, one of the administrators that comes down, he loves popping in my text when he gets a text from me, it's like, oh, this is great, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I think that, I mean, we're trained to use the weaknesses to drive the goals that we write, but that's not what we focus on when it comes to interacting with a student. You focus on the strengths and how you can parlay those strengths into supporting and, you know, ameliorating those weaknesses. Like, how can I take what you can do to help foster you through what you struggle to do? And I mean, those are the conversations that I have with the parents is like, so-and-so is really great at this. This is the area that we need to work on. How are we going to do that? Because it doesn't, it doesn't serve any real purpose to focus on what they do everything we wouldn't be here you know but how can we take what they can do and the awesome parts of their personality and make it you know make that be a thing that helps them with what they struggle with yeah I well, and I like oh I'm sorry no you're fine go ahead um well and I like to focus on the positives also because for me 
um, I mean, it kind of helps to motivate me personally, you know, because when I see that what I'm doing is really helping the student, um, like my background's actually in speech pathology. Um, that's what my bachelor's is in. And so um, I spent some time working with students doing speech therapy with them. And sometimes, you know, I'd have to go and get them out of the classroom and then take them back. Um, and the teachers would sometimes be like, hey, how are they doing? And I always started out with, um, you know, yeah, I mean, I can see where their verbal skills are really improving or, you know, and then I'd kind of be like, how are they doing in here? And so I kind of tried to always, you know, my first thought was not, you know, well, they could do better on this. Like, that's not really the attitude I try to have you know, anyway, like I just, I try to generally be positive <laughs> anyway, um, like a positive, happy person. And so, um, I mean, I just think, you know, in my experience too, that being positive helps us to be motivated too. So I think it's important for us as well, you know, to be positive just as much as it is for the students. <laughs> just as a mindset. Yeah. I think so. Um, one way to, you know, acknowledge the deficits, but also use the strengths is in your intervention planning or your lesson planning. And you might already do this just kind of naturally, but, you know, if you think about students with autism, generally speaking, have a strength in um, visual processing and a weakness in auditory processing. That's kind of a general, um, and that's when labels are maybe helpful, but um, a general way that processing works for students with autism. So to use their strengths, a lesson should have visual cues in order to support any of the auditory processing pieces that might be a little bit more difficult for them. That's a way to use their strengths in order to help them keep making progress on some of the deficit areas. But I um, had felt a little bit like we do spend a lot of time only trying to hone in on deficits um, and, and even the special ed um, label is almost seen as a negative thing. Like what's wrong with my child? It's not what's wrong. It's, um, you know, how can we customize a plan that's going to work and so it's actually a strength to use special ed services. So reframing that, but um, there's a lot of research and there's a program called the Clifton Strengths Based Model, and they have assessments. It's great for adults and for professional development, but they have a lot of research on how um, focusing on strengths and developing programs around your strengths actually maximizes and accelerates progress over focusing solely on deficit areas. And it has a lot to do with motivation and how people respond when their strengths are being used versus when their deficits are being kind of um, hit on over and over again. So if you're not familiar, I would encourage you to look up the Clifton Strengths-Based Model um, and the research that they've done. I think we have to flip the switch almost in education and, and go use those strengths as our, as our like starting point, point instead of looking at, but I think that's a result too of as, as from standardized testing and all that, cause that's sure. when you're, you know, looking at data and things like that. And I, I was a gen ed teacher for 13 years before moving over to special education and I, I will tell you, I, um, I had an experience where I taught a transitional class. Well, the school I was at, we did data boards, you know, and, 
And so, and we had all the sticky notes and everything. And I'll never forget the feeling that I had every time we had these meetings because all my sticky notes were in the red, you know, because I, that was my job was to get, and I just, I always remember that feeling. And I think that's what's helped me become strength-based because my kids as a group were doing incredible and we were making great progress and they were working so hard. But when you looked at their data, you know, on the board, it wasn't as strong as, you know, the other, the other groups. And, and it was very, I mean, it was a hard year of teaching because like, I just, I saw results, but it took me all year to do that. But if I had just said, Oh, you know, forget it. They're not going to learn. You know, I can't, I can't, you know, where would they be? Sure. Well, and if you had maybe taken an individual graph and shown this student started here and now look at the progress that that individual student has made versus this student compared to all other students who have completely different backgrounds and are neurodivergent with different strengths and weaknesses, um, the picture or the story would have been painted a little bit different um, if that's the focus you had been able to use. Well, and I think it's interesting, you know, there are people who use the term neurotypical to mean someone who doesn't have, you know, an autism spectrum disorder or doesn't have this or doesn't have that. But we're a magnet school and we have a bunch of different magnets. We have a computer science magnet. Well, (laughs) if you take that group and you cluster them as neurotypical, they are not neurotypical, but for them it is, you know, that slice. So I think, you know, that's again where that neurodiversity comes in because what's neurotypical in one setting isn't in another. And there are a lot of our kiddos who are in the robotics magnet, in the computer science magnet, you know, that kind of thing their intellectual like academic development there are no issues whatsoever but man is it kind of a social skills nightmare when you go in there right they have some amazing strengths working with robots and computers but then the interpersonal skills are not necessarily their strength but awesome that they can be grouped with other like people who also are strong on those computer and robotic skills and then use those strengths for maybe future skill development and career planning almost. Oh yeah. I mean, it, it's a great program and, and we have a lot of um, really great staff members who work with them, but there are definitely times when they come down to our office and are like, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> this conversation that I just witnessed. <laughs> right, awesome. right. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up. We just talked for a straight hour, guys, and it feels like we just got started. I love having these conversations and getting different perspectives. You guys are all experiencing very different things in your different roles or just, you know, what um, your history is, the different places that you've worked, who you work with. And so it's great to get all of those perspectives and just have these types of conversations. So I really appreciate you guys. Hey guys, 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Coffee and Crucial Conversations brought to you by LK Media, sponsored by the Transformative Leadership Academy. Real educators, real issues, reimagining education.